Welcome to the relaunch of Homeland, the podcast. My name is Frank Foreman, and I'm the host of this podcast and chapter lead for the Naval Postgraduate School, Center for Homeland Defense and Security, Southern California Regional Alumni Chapter. So before we jump into today's episode, I want to thank each of you for hanging with us during the very busy months of 2020. I guess this show has been directly impacted by my work responsibilities addressing COVID-19, protests, civil unrest, wildfires, and, and most recently, the election. Dedicating time to edit and release episodes has been challenging to say the least. However, I've blocked time into my schedule to get the show up and moving forward. Fortunately, I do have some episodes recorded from February's Apex Conference in Monterey, and I think you'll enjoy what we have lined up. Today's episode is with John Kamiski and Mike Larianga, where we'll be talking about climate change and homeland security challenges that arise from this complex issue. So with that, let's just jump right into our discussion on climate security. All right, we're here today with John Kamiski and Mike Larnyaga, and uh, why don't we go ahead and start with, John, go ahead and tell us a bit about yourself, who you are, where you came from, and a bit about your background, and then Mike will go with you when he's done. All right, good morning. Um, my name is John Kamiski. I'm an associate professor of Homeland Security at Monmouth University. I, I lead the program there, uh, and there I you am. Know, as far as uh, my teaching, in addition to that, I do a, a good deal of homeland security research. Uh, my current focus is on climate security. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, my background is I'm a retired New York City police lieutenant, where I did everything from patrol to event management, counterterrorism, um, and uh, retired about nine years ago and have been teaching at Monmouth since. Wow, nice background. Uh, how, how long were you with uh, New York? 23 years. 23 years. Long, a tough city to be in for 23 years. When did you first get hired there? 19, January 1987. Great. All right, Mike? Yeah, my name is Mike Larniaga. I am a risk management consultant. You know, we help companies understand and assess their risk and then help them uh, find risk reduction strategies for, you know, for the future. Um, I'm, I'm a former academician, a former professor in the Department of the School of Fire Protection at Oklahoma State. Um, since leaving Oklahoma State, we've been looking into climate and seeing how that will affect the homeland security of, our, of the United States and how we can cope with what, what might be coming. What did, you, what did you do in Oklahoma? I was a professor. And, and is, in Oklahoma, how is the fire uh, academies and training and all that set up compared to other parts of the country? I mean, is it is it an actual college for firefighting or is it – what is that – so uh, we it, it, it's not for firefighting. Mm -hmm. We do have we did have a fire service training, mm -hmm. which is a state fire service training organization that's similar in almost every state. Okay. And that was, but I was in the academic program, which was okay. an actual degree in fire protection and safety engineering technology. Okay. And many of the graduates of that program do end up going into the fire service, but the focus is not firefighting. Okay. Uh, so what we are here today to discuss is climate change and climate security. The way. Uh, climate change is, is affecting homeland or, or can be um, a homeland threat. And so with that, one, one of you go ahead and let us know what, or explain what your research has uh, developed or shown. So big picture, so what we found is the, what, how the, the changing climate is going to impact our homeland security threat landscape. And that's a, that's a very broad uh, threat landscape, and it, it's evolved. It's evolved since 9-11, where we saw 
the evolution of the Homeland Security community, we call it the whole, whole community, um, Homeland Security Enterprise, all levels of government, federal, state, local, tribal, territorial, NGOs, private sector, and the American citizenry, uh, trying to secure our homeland. And the genesis of that was 9-11, of course. Uh, but we, we moved not long after that to this all-hazards approach after Hurricane Katrina. The, the enterprise evolved very rapidly uh, with the times. Uh, we saw the addition of um, cybersecurity uh, threats, critical infrastructure threats, um, school shootings, um, and, the, and, more re and most recently, election security. And we also were seeing the, the challenges and opportunities of technology. And how, but while they, they afford us a lot of efficiencies and effectiveness, we've seen some of the inherent vulnerabilities. Other, other future um, threats are environmental degradation uh, writ large in the big picture. Climate change being what we now know, or what Mike and I now know um, to be this significant threat. And we came in, I believe, as agnostics. We realized that climate change was going to have an impact. And for about almost six months, we really just focused on the science, spoke to the experts in the field, people who have been researching this subject uh, for decades, looked at uh, some of the models, and in the course of that, some, uh, some very current um, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, started updating their, their assessments uh, that were actually suggested that scientists had been reticent in, the, in their previous uh, estimates. Um, so th this increased our, our level of alarm, and we realized that this, so this is going to affect us, uh, in, whether it's 2050 or 2100, uh, in that, that those are the big um, timelines with that, the IPCC. But we, think, we think now that it's going to actually be sooner. Uh, one of the, uh, the biggest U.S. organizations that has recognized that um, already is the Department of Defense. So um, perhaps maybe taking a lead from some of what they're doing, uh, we believe that the Homeland Security Enterprise, not just DHS, needs to look at what's what, how our, our threat landscape is going to be uh, changed, as well as what part of it uh, perhaps is the enterprise itself um, fueling that, that carbon footprint. And as, as DOD, Department of Defense, we need to take a look at that too. What's our, what's our inputs into this uh, climate change? Mike, do you have anything else on that you'd like to add? You know, I think probably one of the most important things that we discovered was that climate change or climate security will have a bigger impact on the homeland security of the United States than 9-11. And I know that's a fairly grand statement, but um, it will affect more aspects of our society, it'll affect more people, and it'll cost more So to deal with it and, and mitigate. So I think we're at an like, important time in our history when we really need to do something. And I think we, as, as a country, we are doing some things, and there is progress being made, but I think we need to do more. So that's, an, I think, a good segue into what, what would be more? Are we looking at a bigger workforce in Homeland? Are we looking at greater breadth of, of scope? Um, is it going to spawn a new industry? Uh, what, what, where does this really go from here? I think it's uh, all of that, if you will. Um, well, one of the things we recommend and encourage, and, and some of this actually is happening, is how do we innovate? Uh, and we're seeing this with, um, with Tesla, with the batteries and storage. We're seeing some, some energy, cleaner energy, solar and wind. We're seeing some innovations. Um, we're not there yet. But what you talked about, the, the, the workforce, um, I believe that, that's, that's going to happen. 
what we're going to need is a larger surge capability. So what, what do we do if we have multiple category four hurricanes, wildfires, other disasters? How much, you know, these are long-term, you know, long-term rescue and recovery operations. Um, do we don't have the workforce, and uh, big enough of a workforce, or even those, you know, strengthening our core capabilities around what to expect. So that's that's the growth area, and it's not it's not just DHS and FEMA. This is we're going to see this on the local and state level as well. We'll start looking at you know, mutual aid agreements. Okay. So we you're talking about surge capacity, and the government workforce is is only so large. Would this entail in would this entail uh, in, including our communities and different groups, NGOs, or maybe just various programs that could be developed uh, at the community level so we could do that surge capacity. Uh, again, it sounds like it's going to be pretty costly, as you mentioned earlier. Is there something or some programs or some thoughts on that about including the community to support uh, that surge? Well, the communities are what we call part of the enter Homeland Security Enterprise. And so we think, you know, bottom-up, the Homeland, Homeland Security Enterprise has to, ha has to come to a point where they're prepared to deal with these things on their own. We we expect a lot of our federal government, and that you know if we have a year like 2017 every year where we had so many storms occurring at once and very large storms, um, we won't be able to handle it. It it, it was essentially stressing um, DHS and FEMA's abilities to respond and help these communities recover. So I think one of our recommendations is these communities need to prepare and and need to be prepared to become more resilient. Okay, so what what can we do now? Uh, maybe let's just start backing up it before people engaging and supporting. What can our communities and each of us do now? Maybe to um, curb some of that. You mentioned uh, renewable energies. Uh, is is there a way of actually getting away from fossil fuels? Is that the bigger picture? How would we be addressing trying to affect change on the direction the climate is going? One of the most important things that every community can do is to start assessing their risks and seeing where they're going to fall within the effects of of climate change and global warming and how the, how their community their individual community might be affected. Then from there we can start looking at ways to prepare for that. But another way is, um, you know, city policies, urban planning. Um, we can we there's ways of designing the use of less carbon or the use of less fossil fuels into that. Um, you know, urban setting, and then we need—we really need to diverse, diversify our energy portfolio. We can't go green all at once. Uh, we we are going to need fossil fuels. Fossil, our entire infrastructure is based on fossil fuels. So moving away from that is going to take time. I think we are going to be able to move in that direction um, and decrease our use of fossil fuels. We've done that in the last few, several years in the United States already, but I think we need to do more. And communities can help us in that way is figuring out how they can emit less carbon and use less fossil fuels. Okay. John, you have anything on that one? So uh, one of the things we are dealing with the 21st century beyond climate change is, is change is happening so fast. Uh, look, different agencies have to look at how it may, climate change may impact them directly. Take law enforcement uh, writ large. You know, we've got over 17,000 police departments. So there's going to be, it's going to affect different departments in, in different ways, scale to their organization, their area of responsibility. One of our 
pressing 21st century issues in, in many big cities is homeless, homelessness. Uh, so climate change, increasing temperatures are going to probably do two things. It's going to drive some crime rates up. We know, we know the higher temperatures mean um, higher crime rates. We, we have the data for that. It's something that hasn't been explored uh, so far, uh, to, at least to my knowledge, is how might this impact homeless, homeless populations. If some, some jobs or have some of these internal uh, mass human migration within the U.S., perhaps something beyond what we saw from the Depression dust bowls, where we're going to mass you know, perhaps tens of thousands of Americans in, in short periods of time after larger disasters, migrating. Um, some of them are we're going to more, we're going to more, probably more homeless populations. How are the police and EMS, our public health agencies, going to deal with that? How are we going to perhaps, you know, you know, again, going back to that surge capability? Okay. So, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, we saw some, some of that occur during Hurricane Katrina, where we had really a hard time placing people in different locations. And a lot of those people never returned to New Orleans, and I think we're going to see more of that type of event in the future. For the individual, so the whole community, we're looking at potential impacts from our neighbors, and neighbors being anyone across the country, maybe even other countries uh, trying to migrate from where they are uh, to this country. Uh, that sounds like it's also going to impact our um, government of who we are able to let into the country who we don't, how that's going to affect it. Uh, we seem to have a, an issue uh, right now, a lot of focus is on, on our borders. Is this going to increase, the, by your research, does this look like it's going to increase um, uh, border security? In, in 2019, we saw the, the world had the largest climate-related migration in the history that we know of. And, and so just imagine Syria, for example. Uh, Five million people left Syria. Uh, Eleven million people moved within Syria or left, so a total of 11 million uh, climate mi mi uh, refugees in Syria. And look how that changed the world. You know, it really affected countries and it really affected regions of the world, and, you know, we had to decide where these uh, refugees were going to go, and it didn't go so smoothly. Um, if, if that same thing were to happen in Bangladesh, where... It's a much bigger country than Syria, and many more people would be would have to leave because half of Bangladesh is at sea level. So, you know, imagine 20 million refugees. You know, how are we going to prepare for that? And we would need to prepare for that. So not just the whole community, but our global community is what we're looking at. How does everyone work together, different countries setting aside some of their... Uh, preconceived thoughts about migration, uh, immigration, and the refugee uh, people. So looking at boundaries and borders and so forth, I just want to move into something a little different, uh, the Arctic and the melt that's going on up there. How is that going to increase our security uh, or threat to our security for um, territorial uh, boundaries? In Maybe three ways. I think you look at an international relations. You see, you see Russia certainly asserting themselves as, as well as China, building ice cutters. There may certainly, I think, uh, a lot of opportunities upcoming in the uh, Arctic. The opening of the Northwest Passageway uh, for longer periods of time certainly uh, facilitating our global supply chain uh, money savings. At the same time, we're seeing parts of um, Alaska where indigenous populations are losing their their homesteads. So. How do we actually maybe um, 
help them, you know, find find other um, sometimes tribal lands. Um, what we're also seeing uh, Russia building maybe as many as forty uh, bases. So we've got we've got the Arctic Council. We're trying to get some governance. I think we're I think we're, we're struggling uh, with that. I, I also see probably probably more opportunities um, in the Arctic. Uh, paradoxically, what it may actually do is open up some other oil reserves that may not be something that uh, we we need or want. Uh, paradoxically. Um, uh, so something that's called stranded assets is something that we're, we're going to see in some of the uh, some of the oil uh, countries, and perhaps Russia might be one of the bigger. Um, it, may, it may hurt them more losing losing that oil assets there, or the or the common use of that. So they're going to hold on to that. And that's that's a big international relations frame uh, economically. Uh, a, a nation's um, energy reserves or, or that they can use for themselves. Or as well as to sell as a product, um, it, it's creates sort of a bit of a paradox. It's like, well, how you know, if I'm this big power, should I forfeit this great resource, billions of dollars? So that's interesting with bringing in the international relations concepts here and realism or the realist approach with strength through, well, superior military and economic strength. Is Russia or any country, even Venezuela, willing to give up that economic power that they get from their oil reserves in order to address a greater global picture of climate change. Uh, I, I often hear people say, well, we're, we're, we're not the biggest polluter, or we're a big polluter, but what about these other countries? What about it? Economically, uh, Russia, for instance, with their oil reserves, or China developing their industry in order to be a global competitor and maintain the, and grow, continue to grow in their strength. How is that going to impact? Should we say, well, if they're not doing it, uh, why should we? Or, hey, they're not doing it, but we still should. What's your guys' thoughts on, on something like that? So my thought there is, uh, if they're not doing it, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. So we should be taking the lead in climate responsible investment and climate responsible actions. Um, the with regards to being the polluter, we're not the biggest polluter anymore. But for you know 200 years, we were the biggest polluter, and and so the argument that these other countries make, you know, is you use these fossil fuels and emitted all this carbon, which society pays the price for, uh, to build your economy and to become a superpower. So now that we want to develop our citizenry and we want an increasing. Um, um, you know, we want to increase their state in life and, and have, you know, move, move the society upward. Well, that requires more energy. So um, anytime uh, somebody, um, what do you call it when you move up in the world? Social mobility. Yeah, upward social mobility. Uh, yeah, so for, for, for individuals to have upward social mobility, it requires more energy per person. Sure. So uh, the global energy budget is, is going to increase and continue to increase. So what we need to do is find... Um, a varied energy portfolio to to manage this demand, and that's where we get back to you know it's going to be really difficult to get off of fossil fuels. Right, and and so the the varied varied energy portfolio you talk about, um, I driving uh, through the countryside, I see big windmills, clean energy. Uh, Tesla, as you mentioned, has amazing batteries and in continuing to increase the battery life and the capacity of them nuclear reactors. Uh, 
There was a thing years ago I read out of MIT, they talked about the pebble bed nuclear reactor, uh, and that addresses the ability to uh, decrease meltdown issues. Basically, it's like a gumball machine with little radioactive isotopes in these lead balls. Bring them together, it heats up. If you start overheating, they can disperse it like a gumball machine. And But I haven't heard anything about that in the last 15 years, and it seems like people stray away from nuclear energy. What's your thoughts on bringing that back into the fold as a uh, renewable or alternative uh, source of clean energy? Well, nuclear energy is a renewable energy source, and it's what we call a sustainable energy source. I think we're going to need to reconsider that in the future. It's, it's lost favor in the United States and the world. France was recently almost 100% nuclear, but they've moved away from that as, as, you know, to um, satisfy their citizenry. Um, but we're going to need to consider nuclear in the future. Even Greenpeace, who has been against nuclear for so long, has come to the conclusion that we really need to consider nuclear in the future because it's a clean energy. And there, you're right, there are inherently safer designs than previous designs, but we're not building nuclear reactors anymore. I think there's one being built um, maybe in the world at this time. So, um, but we do need to, and a nuclear energy would be a good option for us to consider. So with nuclear energy, I think one of the, the concerns people have is what you do with the waste. And I'd like to expand that a little bit more. There's going to be waste with everything, and we're trying to find a balance. So batteries um, produce waste. Uh, the other technologies will have some waste. The solar panels, uh, can you go into a little bit about what we do about finding a balance between renewable energies and existing uh, sources? Yeah, so, okay. so the way that we can do that responsibly is look at life cycle assessments. You know, instead of looking at the cost of the energy um, today or tomorrow or the cost to build a particular energy source, we have to look at the life cycle cost. And everything has a risk associated with it. No matter what we do, there's an environmental risk. So we need to balance those risks and, and um, regardless of what we do. But with regards to batteries, you know, more companies are recycling batteries than ever. Um, I think we'll get better at that. There are precious metals in those batteries that need to be recovered, and we don't just want to go, those to go in the trash, but uh, we are moving in the right direction on that. Okay. John, you have something on that? Let's reverse engineer a lot of that. So the Industrial Revolution, really great thing. Still going on in, in some of the developing nations. Uh, what that is, is is taking different forms of energy and converting them to, to for efficiencies and effectiveness. It started out with coal, gas, and oil, and now we have more, we, we, a larger portfolio. We have developing nations want, wanting to join the first world, if, if you will, and that means larger populations and higher standards of living. That means we we have energy needs and wants. We, as an international community, perhaps or maybe idealistic. Uh, as a nation to say, well, what are our energy needs and wants? How do we get energy? How do we use that energies, plural, um, effectively, efficiently, uh, protecting the environment the best we can? So a part of that is, uh, is conservation. We may be wasting 30 to 40% of all our energy as, as we're, we're using this. So conservation needs to be a piece of it, and as Mike's, Mike uh, alluded to, is what we believe that the world and every nation should have a portfolio. What is in my, my area? Uh, is the, are the winds strong enough or is the sun strong enough for those wind or solar? Are the wave actions? Is that hydro? Do I have access? Uh, do I have any geothermal resources? 
Um, the coal that we do use, uh, and we're going to be using coal for the foreseeable future, I don't have a, a timeline, we can use that cleaner. We can use our oil and natural gases cleaner, uh, and, and then moving, on, uh, moving, including some of those safer nuclear. So we, we have the waste from that. We also have a waste products from um, the solar power panel. So we, again, we have to look at the pros and cons of each one, and then going to those innovations, okay, these, these wastes we have, how might we convert them uh, to some other usable form? There are some people innovating that we should be burning our, our garbage, burning our garbage cleanly for energy. So that's a win-win. We're minimizing uh, our, our landfills, lowering our, our landfills, um, and recycling as well. So that, that, in that larger uh, energy portfolio. So we're not looking at just single-use, single-track-minded, we need to start taking different industries and have them work together to, to have a complete life cycle, like you'd mentioned, what it is now, what it can be once it's done for its primary use, and how we can integrate that back into, um, into use, but in a clean way. Okay. Um, how about at the individual level? I, I could say my house was built in 1963. When I moved in there, and in Southern California at the time, there was no insulation in the homes. So I had insulation blown into the walls. Then in the attic, I did some work. Then I took my windows out and put double pane uh, window, uh, R-rated windows in versus the single pane windows. Little steps like that, I know, and oh, my water heater, I changed to a tankless water heater and changed my gas uh, stove to a pilotless gas stove. So a lot of different little things I did, which I did notice added up. But that's pretty expensive to do. What are there any things that anything that the the individual can do? I mean, granted, there's some things that are more expensive than others. That an easy first step to making an impact on their personal carbon footprint. That I would imagine with the number of people we have would add up pretty quickly if everyone just did something small. Yeah, we would get a you know the benefit of you know having you know hundreds of thousands or millions of people making energy friendly choices. You know, the individual can do things like in purchase a hybrid vehicle, for example, uh, or a plug-in electric vehicle. Um, the individuals, you know, like you said, can make energy-efficient investments in their home, and that does help quite a bit. Uh, you know, there, you could eat less red meat. There's a high, uh, essentially, carbon footprint associated with eating red meat. Um, and if, if then, then if, you know, less pork and less chicken also, because the, the meats tend to have a higher carbon footprint than plants, so eat more plant plant eat more plants and vegetables and um, so there are things that we can do and we can do individually we can get on um, you know uh, one of the carbon footprint calculators and type in our information and then you know that those look at how you can reduce your carbon footprint based on how you use energy so there's a lot of things that we can do even small things add up for example LED lights are a lot more efficient than incandescent bulbs and they they pay for themselves they have a quick payback also so the carbon footprint calculator, uh, I would imagine that's something on Google. All right, where do you find something? Like yeah, that? so so there's there's many. The the one I like a couple. One's by the Nature Conservancy, and so they have a really nice footprint uh, carbon footprint calculator. And then EPA has several different calculators that you can look. And for example, if you cut your 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 gas bill or your electric usage by a certain amount every month, you can calculate how much carbon you save. And I did that for energy energy efficiency, efficient choices that we did to our home. And I was shocked to learn that we saved 270 tons of 
carbon dioxide from being emitted. Wow. And so when you start really to think about how much carbon we each uh, emit every day, it's a lot. And it's, 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 it's really hard to fathom. Well, places like, well, New York, where you're from, and you have these buildings that were built 100 years ago, uh, and a lot of people may rent, they take mass transit every day. How could somebody who is in a building that they don't have a lot of control over, but um, they already are not driving, they're taking mass transit, what are some things that maybe they can do uh, to, to uh, help decrease their carbon footprint? You know, I think you said it. So that you know, it's personal choice you're making. You're taking public transportation. You're saving. Uh, you know, even even living closer to work. And uh, it's up to you know the relationship you have with your landlord. Whether you insulate your windows yourself, close your windows, turn your lights off. Uh, you know, so you're paying rent. You're not really paying. Maybe not paying electric bill, but uh, you turn the lights off, reusing towels. I mean, and you just it's um, we're very you know we're very one of the marks of a wealthy nation is the amount of waste you have. It's, it, it is natural. Uh, or we, we see that. So be conscious of that. I, again, I think it's some of that personal choice. Um, there's some things that are convenient. Some things are, some things are more inconvenient, carrying around a bottle and filling it up with a water fountain if there's clean water available as opposed to buying a bottle of water. Um, um, again, there's some of the conveniences that maybe we could uh, do without. They could keep their thermostat down a couple of degrees from normal in the winter and a couple of degrees higher in the summer and have their air conditioning run less. Right. So it doesn't have to be something big. It could be something small. We all small wins add up to big ones. Yeah. We all can do something. Right. That that's, I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything such as, well, right now we're talking about, well, in the news is coronavirus and we've had SARS in the past or MERS and different types of diseases with climate change. Are we going to look at maybe a greater spectrum of disease outbreaks or longer durations of them? In your guys' research, have you found anything about that? So there are some concerns of the Zika virus or um, some certain vectors, mosquitoes, can uh, live longer and transmit diseases longer. So um, not a lot of that has been correlated to climate change per se, but the, the rising temperatures, public health officials are concerned about that. Well, what we do know is we have tropical diseases that, that are typically reserved for areas near the equator that are moving northward. And we see those on our southern border. You know, Lyme disease is spreading very quickly all over the entire United States. And there's other diseases that are moving you know, as far up as Wisconsin and things like that. So we do know that, that as a result of a warming climate that these tropical diseases, which we typically haven't had to deal with except in places like South Texas or you know, Louisiana or Florida, um, that we're going to be dealing with now, and when we are dealing with them. Chagas disease, for example, in Texas has moved up quite a bit northward. Okay. So are there any reports out there that might paint the picture uh, of the future with climate change? And not just a, a make-believe future, but something that has been researched, studied, and that people could read and have a... I guess the issue is, is it's hard to visualize a problem that doesn't that isn't right in your face right now. That's big in your face because this obviously takes time and it's incrementally grows. Is there something that people could read to see what the scientists and others have researched and put together uh, to see where we might be like in the next 20 or 30 years? Okay, so the, IP, the IPCC uh, has some good executive summaries that 
that are easily understood. And those are a good place to start. But one of the problems with climate change is it's so big. Uh, it involves almost any field you can possibly imagine as far as a field of study or academic field of study. It's really hard to wrap your mind around it. And so start somewhere where you can get an executive summary, and then from there you can go off and read more. And there's a Nature Climate Science is one that I read often because it's Nature Journal. It's highly respected, and and uh, they, they provide their... Um, Publications free of charge online, so they're available. And so that, that's a good place to start. Scientific American, you know, there's a, there's a good number of places. Sounds like that's good. John, do you have anything on this one? So what Mike and I did in our, our article, uh, Pre-Mortem uh, Scenario Approach uh, to a Sustainable Global Futures, we took some of those uh, United Nations uh, Intergovernmental Panel reports. We took the U.S., uh, national climate assessment, as well as uh, numerous uh, nature articles, took the best available science um, and made, made, created a scenario. Uh, it's something a little like Back to the Future, only the storyline is based you know, research, it's something called possibilistic thinking, as opposed to probabilistic. Based on uh, a good number of the models, these are some of the things that could happen in 2050, we pushed that up to 2040 to give people a, a great sense of how uh, climate change may impact them. So if you're, you know, you're an indigenous population on the coast of Alaska, you're seeing some of that in your front lines. You're seeing, you're seeing losing home, your homesteads. We're seeing uh, the mayor of Miami, the residents of Miami are seeing um, sunny day floods. Uh, high tides are, are seeing that. Um, we're, see, we're seeing more, um, um, uh, more frequent and intense extreme weather events. And we saw, you know, I don't want to lightly leave it to one year, but 2017, those three uh, category four hurricanes in very rapid procession. 2019, you know, uh, seeping up in, in the, the number of incidents, the uh, frequency, the intensity, and the cost values. We're seeing more and more billion dollar disasters. So Mike and I, we're building on that now, and we're doing something similar uh, in the Homeland Defense sphere specifically uh, for NORTHCOM presentation. And DOD, Department of Defense, they, they get it. They, they get that it's, 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 it's impacting them already. Some very major naval bases, Norfolk being the home of the second fleet, the primary fleet for Arctic security. So you're seeing a, a lot of these um, connections. So Mike and I, we're, we're going to build on this. Essentially, we want, we want people to see, you know, we're going to have more of these disasters. We're going to have droughts and, and floods that are going to hurt our agriculture and our ability to, to feed ourselves. What, uh, what we see from some of these possible futures is, well, if, if this happens, we may regret uh, we're likely to regret uh, not taking more action today. This is what we think is going to happen. We should be preparing for that. Great. Well, I've asked a lot of questions through this, this whole time, but is there a question or statement or comment that you guys have that I didn't ask that really should have been asked or you'd like to add to it? Well, I guess one thing I'd like to add is that Climate change is a somebody's problem. It's everybody's problem, and we're all somebody. And we all can do something. It's going to affect all of us, and particularly it's going to affect um, poor, poor populations more because they have less resources to move and to, to just mitigate climate change. And so I think, you know, it, it's, a, it's a today problem, and it's an everybody problem. Great. 
John, did I answer or ask all the questions that you wanted, or is there something else? No, we're in a good space. I think what we've captured here is, it's, it's, well, I'm from New York, it's huge. This is a huge problem, and like Mike said, it's in everybody's problem. What we're trying to do now, where we, where we believe we're now, is building paths forward uh, for that homeland security enterprise to do you know, their, their core missions to prevent and mitigate future uh, disasters, uh, to respond uh, effectively and efficiently, save lives and property, and, and recover from, and help us all recover for that. That's the resilience piece. Great. Well, I learned a lot. I appreciate it. I appreciate both of you and the time that you've taken to sit with me today and discuss this uh, pretty important issue. And uh, I just want to say again, thank you both. Thank you so much. It's been great. So, there you have it. Mike Larianga and John Kamiski. After listening to this conversation, there are so many key and interesting points these men made, I find it difficult to narrow down one item that stands out above the rest since the effects of climate change touch every aspect of our lives. So I have to list a few. It's important for each of us to do our part, building upon the power of incremental changes by the many having compounding effects on, for the whole. We must keep in mind that transitioning to renewable and sustainable energies cannot happen overnight. Rather, it's imperative to integrate these technologies with our existing forms of energy production while we improve upon some forms of this energy and move away from others. And looking for the silver bullet that will solve all of our energy problems isn't a reasonable expectation. But cataloging unique, regional, and geographical aspects into the decision-making process will help identify which source or sources may be the best fit. I feel as if I could continue on, but much of what we can do to slow climate change, we already know. The difficult part is taking action on a personal level and go without some of the comforts you take for granted. I'm going to end with that, but there's one last item I need to mention. At the time of our last episode in February, we were having some technical difficulties with subscriptions, notifications, and podcast downloads. We believe this has been resolved, but if you're still experiencing issues, let us know at homelandthepodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, homelandthepodcast at gmail.com. And with that, I'm Frank Foreman, your host, and until our next episode, take care.